0: voice of millions of angels. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and they sang in a mighty chorus. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor remember what you wanted to be when you were growing up? Think back when you were four, five, maybe six years old. What did you want to be? What is it that you like to tell people? I'm going to be a police officer or a firefighter or maybe be an astronaut, maybe the president. Kids say some funny things when you ask them what they want to be when you grow up. Uh, So we have a five-year-old named Stephen, but a few years ago, I started asking him this question, and I love to ask my kids this question now. So I say, Stephen, what do you want to be when you grow up? You know, you're you're just hoping for the best in these moments, right? And he says, I want to be a doctor, and you're like, we're on the right track, okay? (laughs) Good. And I say, well, why do you want to be a doctor? And he says, because I want to help people. Yes! (laughs) Success! If you guys need any parenting advice, you now know where to come. As I said, that was a couple years ago. And so if you were to ask Stephen today, who's five, he might tell you, uh, Dad, I'd like to be a dinosaur. So somewhere along the way, uh, we uh, fell off the table, so to speak. And I I don't know what went wrong. I'm blaming Savannah. Anyways. But it's a funny question to ask kids, and it's funny to think about why we're interested, uh, what we're hoping, what we're trying to portray their future as. But you know, I started thinking about it, and adults don't ask that uh, dissimilar of a question. We pretty much ask the same thing. When you meet someone, one of the first things you will ask them is, what do you do? It's the same question, only now we're not asking a kid, we're asking an adult. What did you grow up to be? Who are you? We think that by asking what people do, we can know who they are. We make a lot of assumptions about who they are based off of what they do. And as a parent, I've been thinking about this a lot. How could I ask my child, not what do you want to be when you grow up, but what kind of person do you want to be? Who will you be when you grow up? Because today, we're going to be in the book of Revelation. And that's the question that it really asks, is not What will you do when you grow up? But what kind of person will you be? And this is a far more important question for us to consider. So if you have a Bible today, I invite you to open up to Revelation chapter eight. I also wanna greet you uh, here just like Luke and Jason have done. My name is Cale, one of the ministers here. And we're so glad that you are here to worship with us today, especially if you're one of our guests. Thank you for being here. And I wanna piggyback onto what Jason said about our ice cream social next week. You know, one of our founding more and most important mission points here is a to come and to connect and the ice cream social is just that it is a great event for you to not only come to be here with us but to connect with other people and who doesn't love connecting over a bowl of ice cream I know I do that's my favorite way to connect with anyone so if you would like to invite me to a meeting please bring ice cream um, and so that's, that's next week, and so we hope that you will come to that. It's, it'll be a great time uh, that we spend together eating ice cream and then uh, worshiping together. So I hope you've had a chance to turn to Revelation chapter 8. We've been in this series now. This is the fourth week. I do want to, uh, Tim wanted me to remind you that next week you do have some homework. We'll be covering Revelation 12 through 18 next week, and so I hope that you will read that ahead of time. But Revelation is one of those books that's very mysterious. It's very challenging. In fact, I would bet that most of you have more questions than you do answers about Revelation. When you think about that book, you wonder more things about it than things you might even actually know. In fact, for me, even this week, I did a lot of uh, research, a lot of study. I read uh, these couple of books that you'll see on the screen here. I'm trying to glean a little bit more information about Revelation. And I told someone earlier that I read both these books, put them to the side, and I went, what have I learned? Not that much. So, But I will say, that book on the right, The Throne, The Lamb and the Dragon, if you are looking for a short-ish book, 150 pages or less, um, that will sum up Revelation for you, that's the book for you. I was very excited when I opened it and saw that this was a small book. And so... I would recommend that. If you're wanting to know a little bit more, I would recommend that. But Revelation, you know, it's always in the news every once in a while. People think of Revelation almost like it's the movie National Treasure, like it's the Declaration of Independence, and on the back there's a treasure map. But we'll go to the book of Revelation. If we could just understand it, we would unlock all of these secrets and the treasure that lies at the end, right? That's kind of how we talk about Revelation, and maybe you see it in the news every once in a while. People use this book to predict some event, some thing that's come up. Every time we have a presidential election, people look at the book of Revelation to determine who is going to win. And maybe you remember when the, the Left Behind series came out. I was in middle school when that book got really popular. In fact, I could take you to the spot in my middle school today when I first learned about it and had a friend tell me that, you know, you're going to be left behind and I'm, uh, I'm going to go to heaven, but you're going to still be here. And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. But we can go play football now, right? I mean, because that's kind of how it is. Uh, we, we have all of these examples, not only in our culture, but even um, in ourselves, that this book is used, and I would say misused, to say a lot of things. In fact, that's what we've been doing in this series, is trying to reveal a little bit more about Revelation. So I want to reiterate just a few things that Tim has said over the last couple of weeks. Revelation is a book that does not speak about our time, but it does speak to our time. It doesn't portray events that may happen today, but it does give lessons and spiritual truths that are very important for us now. The book, the New Testament, is often written in different genres, and that is something you have to understand about the book of Revelation, that it, it is written in the apocalyptic genre, much like. The book of Philippians, Paul wrote as uh, in the genre of a friendship letter. Now we know the book of Philippians is a letter, but did you know that when you went to it, that Paul essentially used a form that they called a friendship letter? So when those first-century Christians would read it, they would read it and understand that this he is portraying himself as a friend here, even though he may say difficult and challenging things. This is a friend saying it. Well, we read the book of Revelation and. And we think some thoughts about it, but they would have seen apocalyptic literature. Now, I know that word is a kind of a buzzword, but did you know that the word apocalypse is the Greek word translated into revelation? That's what that means. So we were never hiding the fact that this is what it is. But apocalyptic literature is written that you tend to have a vision or a message from a heavenly being, and it is written using lots of metaphors and imagery. And if you read any one chapter In the book of Revelation, you will see that that is true. As I said, Revelation wasn't written to our time, but it was written to a church in the first century that was probably either under persecution or they could see it coming almost like a storm gathering on the horizon. They could see this persecution coming. And the call of Revelation is to resist the easy road, to resist temptation, to resist the empire, and to hold on to your faith. In fact, John will ask them to lean into their faith. And just as Tim mentioned last week, covering Revelation 6 and 7, suffering will come, but you you still hold on to your faith and your calling even in the midst of suffering. And this is a good reminder for us as well. We find ourselves in 2018 in the Bible Belt in America in a place that is not hostile to religion. No one came here today under any kind of fear. We're not afraid of the door being um, knocked down People finding us here, that just isn't the case. Um, and so we, because of that, we are blessed people. We get to come here, and we get to worship in freedom. But there is a drawback to that as well. See, when there is no cost to having faith, we have a rise of what we would call nominal Christianity, meaning Christians in name only. If there's no cost, you can adopt the name of Christian and not really change anything about it. Because if you think about the first century Christians, they're not going to call themselves a Christian just for any reason. There is a going to be a cost to bear the name of Christ. And they were willing to bear that cost. Now, our country makes it that we don't really have as much of a cost. In fact, you may have neighbors on either side of you that both call themselves, or one calls himself a Christian and the other doesn't, and they may look very similar. You could call yourself a Christian in our day and age and not really change your life all that much. And the book of Revelation speaks just to that and says, That is not the way that you are being called to be disciples. And it it reminds us going back into chapter 3 of Revelation when he says, because you are neither hot nor cold, because you are lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. And if we're not careful in our day and age and in our time and place, that, that could be who we become if we're not careful. That our faith is so easy, is so comfortable, that if we're not careful, we could be those who are identified as lukewarm Christians. And today we're going to go over Revelations chapter 8 through 11. We just finished where John gave us his vision of the seven seals, and now we're going into the seven trumpets. And I want you to remember that everything in Revelation is symbolic, but also Revelation is a non-linear book, meaning that John will repeat himself a lot, that the vision and the message behind the seven trumpets is very similar to what he said behind the seven seals. And so he is trying to make one clear point to these churches, one clear point to you and to me, and that is this repent because the kingdom of God is coming soon. And so you need to repent. And so if you have your Bible open, turn with me to Revelation chapter 8, starting in verse 6. All the text will be on the screen, but this is how it reads. Then the seven angels with the seven trumpets prepared to blow their mighty blasts. The first angel blew his trumpet, and hail and fire mixed with blood were thrown down on the earth. One-third of the earth was set on fire, one-third of the trees were burned, and all the green grass was burned. Then the second angel blew his trumpet, and a great mountain of fire was thrown into the sea. One-third of the water in the sea became blood. One-third of all the things living in the sea died. And one-third of all the ships on the sea were destroyed. Then the third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from the sky. Burning like a torch, it fell on one-third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star was Bitterness. It made one-third of the water bitter, and many people died from drinking the bitter water. Then the fourth angel blew his trumpet, and one-third of the sun was struck, and one-third of the moon, and one-third of the stars, and they became dark. And one-third of the day was dark, and also one-third of the night. Then I looked and heard a single eagle crying loudly as it flew through the air terror 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 to all who belong to this world because of what will happen when the last 3 angels blow their trumpets. So here we have the first, the vision of the first 4 trumpets and I don't know about you but it wasn't very good. It wasn't very hopeful. It wasn't a great message. But then he hears this eagle cry out and says, "Beware because the last 3 are coming." And You're like, "The last 3?" It wasn't great to begin with, and now it's going to get worse. And so what he describes in describing the trumpets, uh, the fifth and the sixth trumpets, is he said the fifth one blows, and it's as if locusts are called up out of the earth. But instead of doing what locusts always do, which is eat grass and leaves, these locusts are commanded to eat, to destroy and harm people, specifically people that do not have the seal of God on them. And then the sixth trumpet is blown. And what is revealed is an army of mounted troops numbering 200 million. And they are called up against those who have not repented. And John will finish this little section in Revelation chapter 9, starting in verse 20 with this. But the people who did not die in these plagues still refused to repent of their evil deeds and turned to God. They continued to worship demons and idols made of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood. Idols that can neither see, nor hear, nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, or their witchcraft, or their sexual immorality, or their thefts. John's call here is to repent. With these six trumpet blasts, he is portraying as um, as harshly as he can the need to repent, the need to turn back to God. And this is a tough text for us to understand, but it may be even tougher for us uh, to accept. See, if you're new here to CrossFit, what I want you to know is that this is a place that talks a lot about God's love and God's grace. In fact, we would say that no matter how you come into here, you are accepted just as you are. That God's grace is enough for all of us. There is no one here who is without sin. And all of that is true, but then we come to this text, and it talks a lot about judgment. And we say, well, what about The cross, what about the mercy and forgiveness and grace? And Revelation isn't doing away with those things, but what it is saying is that the kingdom of heaven is coming soon. God himself will be returning, and because of that, you need to repent. So when judgment comes, what John is trying to portray is that God is perfect. He cannot be with your sin. He cannot be with your idolatry, and so you must turn away from that because God is coming soon. And so is his judgment. There is no place for sin. And so the question for us is, will we be prepared for the coming kingdom? Will we be prepared for the, to worship the lamb when he returns? What's challenging is that these scenes get progress, progressively worse and worse, more drastic. It's as if John is saying, you must repent now. It's getting more and more challenging for us. So the vision is ready for the seventh trumpet to blast. Only there's a pause. You and I as the reader, those who first heard this, would be ready for the seventh trumpet to be sounded, to hear. We are bracing ourselves for what's coming. Only it's almost as if heaven pushes the pause button so that John has time to communicate something else. And here's what John will say. Here will be his challenge. In light of God's soon return, It's time for the church to witness boldly. It's time for the church to witness boldly. Look at what he says in Revelation chapter 10, starting in verse 8. Then the voice from heaven spoke to me again. Go and take the open scroll from the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and I told him to give me the small scroll. Yes, take it and eat, he said. It will be sweet as honey in your mouth and it will turn sour in your stomach. So I took the small scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it. It was sweet in my mouth, but when I swallowed it, it turned sour in my stomach. Then I was told you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. So what we have here is an image that is common throughout scripture. Um, To eat of the scroll is is a biblical, biblical metaphor that is often used. And the message is this, that you need to take and eat The Word of God. And this message was for them, but it is also for us. See, it's not enough to hear the Word of God just occasionally or to read the Word of God occasionally or even to study it once in a while, but it must become part of us. We must uh, consume the Word of God because we don't want to be people who just approach it every once in a while. If it becomes part of us, it can dictate not only what our actions will be, but who we are. This is the message that John gives, that you must let the word of God dictate who you are to be. This is who he wants us to become. And see, sometimes we know that the word of God is life-giving, and so you go to it and it gives you life, and it's life-giving, but you also know that it requires something of you. It's sweet on your mouth, but it's sour in your stomach because you cannot take the word of God and not allow it to change you. You have to allow the word of God to change who you are. And so we take the word of God and it's life-giving, but we know that it will require us to become different people. This is what repentance is. It asks us to change. And so we take the word of God and we know that it might be difficult, it might be hard, it might be painful, but we know that we do not wanna be those lukewarm Christians. We wanna be followers and disciples of Jesus Christ. And so we take the word of God and we allow it to change us. And we do this for a purpose, John says. And the purpose is to witness boldly. Now, I don't know about you, but today the message for you will, to be, will be to go out into the world and witness boldly. And if you are like me, that message may cause your stomach to turn just a little bit. Okay? Because when I think about witnessing boldly, the first image that comes to my mind is the guy on the street corner with the sign. Right? Right? And you're driving by, and it's not the little Caesar sign. He's not dancing, okay? It's, it's the sign that says, repent or go to hell. It's the guy that as you um, are lying in bed on an early Saturday morning, it's the person that is knocking on your door too early, right? They have a pamphlet. You, you know what I'm talking about. And you're like, we're not home. Um, that, that is what I think of when I think about witnessing boldly. Or maybe you think about this, Uh, maybe most of you know that I went to uh, Oklahoma State University, that's the prettiest campus in the whole world right there. Um, (laughs) I heard a lot of amens, I don't know what y'all heard, but, um, (laughs) and over there on the top right, that's the library, and we had a guy who was there um, all the time named Preacher Bob. Now, I don't know if this was his real name, but he was the kind of guy that was there um, every day, and he was calling out for people to repent. But it wasn't in a way that made you want to turn away from your sin. You wanted to turn away from him, right? You wanted to run away because he would call out to people and say, basically, I see you. Repent or you're going to hell. Uh, You are in sin. It's that kind of message. This is who he was. Um, And I don't know how effective his message was because, as I said, I uh, ran away. (laughs) And so um, when I talk about witnessing boldly, when revelation prompts us to be those kind of people, that's not what it's asking us to do. It's not asking us to witness in a way that causes and brings shame on people, but in a way that brings life and change to people. So I want to leave you today with three things that, how we can witness boldly in our time. The first thing that we can do is we can invite others. And I know for some of you, inviting someone to church or inviting them into a conversation about faith might be the most challenging thing in the whole world. And I'm right there with you. It can be very difficult to go to someone when your relationship has been um, all about something else. Maybe it's your neighbor and you've only ever talked about the weather, and to take it to this level. I realize that that's challenging. But here's the question that we have to ask ourselves today Is what we have worth sharing with others? when we call it the good news, do you believe it? Is it news that has changed your life and is worth sharing to those who don't have it? Because if you said yes to any of those, then you have to be willing to invite others. I don't know about you, but I am probably uh, the best ambassador there is for food. Um, if, I, if I eat at a good restaurant, I will tell you about it. Um, and I am on a mission to eat at all the best restaurant, uh, barbecue restaurants in the state of Texas. And I am thankful that there are many. Um, and it will take me a long time. But if I eat at a great barbecue restaurant, you can promise I'm gonna tell you about it. And I'll be honest, part of that is to, is to cause you a little jealousy. I'll, I'll, I'll be upfront about that. But really it's because when I eat something so good, I think everyone should try it. Everyone should have it. And so if you need a good barbecue recommendation, you can come to me the answer is not Dickies. <laughs> or maybe you have a new television show that you just think everyone should try. Everyone should watch the show. It's the best. Did you see that movie that came out? Everyone needs to go see it. Why are we so quick to talk about things that we would, be, if, that we would say are not that important? Why are we so quick to bring up these kinds of things, myself included, talking about barbecue, when... I would tell you this is not the most important thing in the world. My faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is the most important thing in the world, but I'm much more quick to talk about barbecue. Why is that the case? If it, it truly is good news, if what he did on the cross is worth talking about, then we have to be, we have to be bold and we have to go talk about those things. But it just, isn't just to anyone. See, the second thing is that we, we want to invite people, but we also want to do it where we are. So I believe that God has put you in a specific place for a reason. Let me give you an example. I started working uh, here at Crosspoint a little over two years ago, and when I got this job, we started looking for a home for us. We started um, looking for houses, and Vivian can attest that that was a journey. It was. It was, could have been a reality TV show, you know. Um, I think we ended up making six or seven offers on houses before we finally found the one that we now live in. And on one hand, you could talk about it like this, and this would all be true. Well, you know, maybe we weren't offering enough money. Um, There was a low supply of homes, and the demand was great. Maybe we weren't moving fast enough. All of that might be true. But I also believe that God wanted us in a specific place for a specific reason. And it is a simple shift in perspective when you think about it like that. You could do this with your job too. Well, why didn't I get that promotion or why didn't I get that job? And maybe you could say, well, you don't have the education. You don't have the experience. You, those other people maybe had an end that you just didn't have. They, they interview better than you did. Or maybe you were where you are because God wanted you right where you are. God has put you in a specific place for a specific reason. I also like to talk about sometimes um, just... Savannah and I, when we're just um, talking, we say, Well, what if you weren't living right now? Like, where, when would you think would be fun to live? If it wasn't 2018 in Dallas, like, when would it be fun? And sometimes Savannah will say, You know, the 1920s seemed like a cool time. Maybe we could try that. And I said, No air conditioning, so you can go without me. But, um, <laughs> but if, even if, you th- if you think about it like that, you think, I want you to know that you are in a place for a specific reason. God put you here now for a reason. And when you think about it like that, it changes your perspective on things. So today when I go home, I'm not just going to the house that I happen to live at because it just worked out for these reasons, but I'm looking at a place that God put me for a reason. And you start to ask yourself, why am I here? What is God having, what does he want to do with me here? Because as we read, he wants repentance. He wants people to turn towards him. And he's going to use you to do that. Why do I have the job that I have? Well, what is God going, how is God going to use you in that place? And so today, when you go home, maybe you ask yourself that question. You don't just see a house. You don't just see bricks. You see a mission. You see a purpose. Maybe every Sunday you go out to eat at the same place and you don't just see the waiter or the waitress that you always just talk to. Maybe you see a mission, a place that God has put you. Because here's the deal. We all have a circle of influence, whether it's in your neighborhood, at your workplace, the places that you frequent often, like the grocery store um, or the places that you eat. But God has put you in a place, and how will you use that? How will you answer that call? And that's the way that he is asking us as disciples to view the world, that we have to look that way. So we invite people, and we do it where we are. And I think the last point might be the most important, and is that... We do it while we are being joyful. Because here's the deal. If we have good news, if we, if we reflect on the cross and what Jesus Christ has done for us, it should lead us to living different lives. We should be joyful all the time because of what we profess that Jesus has done in our life. Amen? <laughs> if you realize, if you stop and think about for a second what Jesus has done, your sin is gone. Your fear of death is gone because of what Jesus has done in your life. The number one command in all of scripture is to do not fear. And for us, sometimes us as Christians, we live with too much fear. We just do. We live in too much fear of what people might think about us if we talk about our faith, uh, what, what would happen if we actually started living with our faith. And so we as Christians need to give up our fear and lean into our faith in Jesus Christ. Your neighbors and your coworkers should be thankful that you live and work there because you should be someone different. And so when you moved into your, your neighborhood, when you started to work there, they should be thankful that you are there because of what Jesus Christ has done. And they should be asking themselves, how can I be like that? What, what is it that they have that I don't have? I want some of that. This is the kind of people we should be. We should be filled up and overflowing with joy because of the good news of Jesus Christ. And so we invite people where we are and with joy. And here's a quote that I, that I really like. What does the evidence of our daily lives say about who we really are? What does the evidence of our daily lives say about who we really are? When people see you, who will they know that you are? It goes back to that first question, not what do you do or what do you wanna be when you grow up, but What does your life say about who you are? The world should see people who have been made new because of the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. This is who we are as people. And so my challenge for you today is as you leave, you live with that. Because here's the deal, church. God is on a mission. Our Lord and Savior is not going to rest until all people come to know him. Every single person that has ever been born in this world bears the image of Christ and he wants them to return home to him. And here's the difficult part, church, is he's going to use you to do it. His mission, his biggest tool in this world is going to be his church reaching out to others. And so it starts in us. It starts with us taking in the word of God, repenting and turning back to him and living that joyful life so that others may know him. In closing, I want to remind you that our shepherds and their wives will be around the wall today. They're there to accept you in prayer because we know that repentance is necessary for us. That there have been times that we have, that we have strayed from the path and we want to walk with Christ. And so let us do that with you. Don't walk alone, church. We want to walk with you. In Revelation chapter 11, the seventh trumpet will blow. And when it does, it is not a trumpet that brings more judgment, but it is a trumpet announcing worship. Because this is who we are, church. We repent, and then we are called to worship. So won't you stand with me as we continue our worship?